The timing of the so-called rapture is by far the biggest controversy in all of eschatology. There are some who believe the rapture will occur before the period of the tribulation. There are some who believe the rapture will occur at the midpoint of the tribulation. And there are others who believe that the rapture will happen after the tribulation. Who's right and who's wrong? We'll talk about it on this week's episode of Revelation Unveiled on Faith by Reason. Welcome to Faith by Reason. The website behind it all is faithbyreason.net. There you will find hundreds of hours of teaching material and study material, blogs, podcasts, and video. And we are continuing our study on the book of Revelation. We've been taking an interlude the past couple episodes to look at the event called the rapture and the controversy and theories about it now that we have gotten past the church age. Because although people disagree about many things about the rapture, one thing they will agree upon is that it affects the church. So now that the church age is over, as of Revelation chapter 4, it's a good time to look at the rapture and the intense controversies that surround it. The first controversy, which we talked about last week, is the idea of whether or not the rapture is even biblical. And I think we show pretty conclusively that it is a biblical concept and it is even verbally in the Bible in the right translation. So the rapture is biblical. No doubt about that. But the second controversy, which is the biggest, again, by far, is the timing of the rapture as it relates to the period of time Christians call the tribulation. So before we get into it, let's just let's establish our definitions. The objective definition of a rapture is when a personal group of persons are physically and supernaturally transported from one place to another. That's what a rapture is. Now, as far as the rapture we're talking about now would be the end times rapture of the church, which is the idea that at some point in the future, Jesus will descend from heaven and then call Christians for believers to himself and they will be raptured, supernaturally, physically transported from earth to heaven. So that is the end times rapture. Now let's define the tribulation. The tribulation is the word that Christians give to the last seven years of human rule on this earth, the last seven years of history before the second coming of Jesus as the conquering king. And this seven years will be a period of extraordinarily extraordinary calamities and judgment that is unlike any period that has ever existed in the history of the world. The Bible says very clearly that there has never been a time of turmoil like the tribulation. So in, it's a place that it is a event that is documented pretty uh, vividly in the biblical scripture. And again, the big controversy regarding the rapture is where it occurs as it relates to the tribulation. There are some who believe that there will be a pre-tribulation rapture, i.e. a rapture. The rapture will happen before this seven-year period. We call them pre-tribs or pre-tribbers. And then there are those who believe that the rapture will happen at the midpoint at the seven and a half year point of this uh, of, of the tribulation we call them mid-tribbers and then there are those who believe that the rapture will occur after the tribulation and they are called post-tribbers or post-tribulation believers and, and people generally tend to take one of these views and they uh, dig in and they hunker down and they take that view and they defend it vigorously and they vigorous, vig- vigorously attack those who take the other position and it it's, gets pretty intense. So let's just look at the reasons that people take the one of these three positions. 
So let's start with the uh, pre-tribulation uh, believers. The pre-tribulation, obviously, a rapture idea obviously means that the the rapture will happen before the period of time we call the tribulation. In order to understand why these folks believe what they believe, we need to take a look at the ancient Jewish wedding practice. Now, in ancient Judaism, a wedding would the marriage would not be exactly the same as what we uh, how, how we get to a wedding today. Today, a wedding is, you know, you have boy meets girl, a boy and girl fall in love, they date, you know, they get to know each other, and they, they get married. It was a little different in ancient Israel. Weddings were more along the lines of what we would consider an arranged marriage, in that the once a young man, the son of the family, was of marrying age, his uh, his representatives, either a family, family, member, family member, excuse me, or a servant, would go and find an appropriate young lady for him to marry. And they would come to her and they would offer her the idea of, of taking the hand of the groom in marriage. And it wasn't like a shotgun marriage. It wasn't a, a something that was imposed upon the, uh, upon the young lady. She had a choice. What would happen is they would go to a young lady of a good family, appropriate marriage uh, material, and they would tell her about the groom, about the, the, the bridegroom about the family, about about the family she'd be marrying into, about what the son was like. And if she accepted that and thought that this was a good person for her to marry, a good family she wanted to marry into, then she would accept. But if she didn't, she had the option of saying, no, this is not someone I want to marry. This is not a family I want to marry into. And if she decided no, then that was it. There was no force involved. They, they would have to go on to someone else. Now, if the potential bride said, yes, this is someone I want to marry. This is a family. I want to marry into, then what what would happen then is that the, the the son's family would give her gifts as a token of the betrothal called the uh, ketubah in in Hebrew. That's that's the whole betrothal process. And what what would happen after that is the son would go back to his father's house and start building an addition to the father's house for them to live in. He would start building their home. And while he's doing that, the bride-to-be, her job was to start making herself ready to be a wife. She would start learning what she needed to know to be the bride. She would be sanctified. She'd be set aside as the property of this husband-to-be. And she would, again, be, be sanctifying herself, making herself ready to be this wonderful, perfect bride, this perfect wife for the, for the man. Now, after the son was done building their home together, he would come and get her. Well, the, the, the tradition would go that he, once he was done with, with building um, their home, he and some of his best friends and some uh, members of the family, they would get a caravan together and they would travel to the home of the bride-to-be. And it was usually in the middle of the night as a surprise. And they would blow a trumpet and they would all shout for joy. And the bride would have to come down immediately and join this caravan and go back to be with the son. And, and they would have the marriage ceremony and they would live together. So the bride had to be in a, in a state of constant readiness because she didn't know when the groom was going to come for her. She had no idea when he would be done because keep in mind that in many cases, she had never met the groom. She had no idea who what he looked like, what he, uh, who, you know, who he was. But I mean, she knew who he was and what his character was like because it was it was witnessed to her by the representatives of, of the groom's family but she had never met him 
So she would meet him for the first time and they would go off together, but she had to be in a state of constant readiness, a constant sanctification. And if she was not ready, if the groom would show up and they would blow the trumpet and do the shout, and if she was not ready, the wedding was off. Because that would be a, a, a evidence that she was not a good potential wife because she was not making herself ready for the groom. Okay, so what does this have to do with the rapture and with Jesus? Well, remember the church is called the bride of Christ and Jesus is ethnically Jewish. So it would stand to reason that he would utilize this same Jewish marriage tradition. I don't think it was it's in the it's in Jewish tradition by accident. Jesus also mentions it blatantly when you go to the book of John, the Gospel of John, chapter 14, where Jesus says, we talk to, to his disciples and his believers, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you will be also. Now to Jewish ears, this is exactly the process of the ketubah. This is part of the marriage. And remember who he was talking to. He was talking to his disciples. These were young Jewish men who were around marrying age. In fact, the disciple Peter was already married. They knew what this meant. This was not a mystery to them. This was not hidden a, a hidden statement. This was blatant marriage language. And Jesus says this in regard to believers that he would do what a, bride, a Jewish bridegroom would do. He would go and prepare a place in his father's house. And then he would come as a surprise and take them away. So the pre-tribulation people believe that this is a model for how Jesus will return for his church. Furthermore, in the letter to Philadelphia, which we talked about a few episodes ago, Jesus blatantly proposes to the Philadelphian church. The Philadelphian church is a bride of Christ. That faithful church is his bride. And Jesus, not only, not only does he propose to them, again, fitting, them, fitting the model of this Jewish wedding, he also explicitly says, that those who are of the Philadelphian church will be kept out of the tribulation. They will not preserved through it. They will be physically taken out of it. They will be raptured from the world before this tribulation period starts. So people who believe in a pre-tribulation rapture look at these two ideas, the Jewish marriage and the, the proposal to Jesus uh, of the, to the Philadelphian church as an idea, as as, as proof point that, that the church will be taken out before the rapture. I'm mean, sorry, before the tribulation, if we raptured before the tribulation. Also, we see in the book of Revelation, we've looked at this before a few, a couple weeks ago in chapter four, we saw that the, the, the lampstands, which we saw in chapter one, represented the church. Jesus blatantly says that the lampstands are the church. In Revelation chapter four, after the church age, those lampstands, the church is now in heaven. And this is before the tribulation. The tribulation does not start until Revelation chapter 6. Well, Revelation chapter 4, the lampstands are in heaven. Also, the 24 elders we saw represent the church. They are also in heaven in chapter 4, two chapters before the tribulation starts. So those are two other reasons to believe that the church is in heaven before the tribulation starts. Um, also, in Second Thessalonians chapters 2, uh, starting around verse 7, uh, Paul makes it clear that the Antichrist, who is a catalyst for the tribulation, the, tribu the, the seven-year tribulation is, is framed by a, a seven-year covenant that the Antichrist, and we'll talk about him down the road a bit, he establishes with the nation of Israel. The seven-year period it was what frames the tribulation. He ceased. He has a seven-year covenant. Now, the Antichrist can't even be revealed until an entity called the Restrainer is taken out of the way. The Bible says that pretty clearly. Uh, Pre-tribulation believers 
will see this restrainer as the Holy Spirit, as the only one who can restrain Satan. Um, some folks say it's Michael the Archangel, but Michael can't restrain Satan. We see in the book of Jude that when Michael and and Satan were disputing over the body of Moses, that's a whole other talk we'll get into maybe some other time, um, he couldn't defeat Satan by himself. He had to he had to say, the Lord rebuke you. He had to bring in uh, God to it. So the only one who can restrain Satan, Satan is the most powerful angelic being. He Only God can restrain him. And the only person of the Godhead who is on earth restraining is the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit indwells the church. Therefore, the Holy Spirit has to be taken out of the way, meaning the church has to be taken out of the way before the Antichrist can even come into power. So if the Antichrist is the person who starts in tri tribulation, he has to be gone before, the Holy Spirit has to be gone before the Antichrist can come into power. So the church has to be gone before the Antichrist can come into power, and which means that the church has to be gone before the tribulation. And lastly, Jesus admonishes the church to be watchful in order to be a part of the rapture. We talked about this in the, in the letter to the church at Sardis. They were told that because they weren't watchful, Jesus will come upon them as a thief to take something. But if they were watchful, then, then there would be no thievery from Jesus. So these are the reasons for, for that the pre-tribulation rapturists believe in that, in, in their doctrine. Now, there are opposing views. The uh, mid- and post-tribulation uh, rapture believers, they dispute a lot of this. They believe that many of these concepts are pretty specious at best. The idea of the Jewish wedding, while, you know, fascinating, is not explicitly put forth in the Bible. And the so therefore, even the idea of, of that being related to Jesus' coming for his church is stretching things quite a bit to believe that. Also, the idea that the restrainer has to be the Holy Spirit is also uh, pretty specious. They, they reinterpret what Paul is saying to say the opposite, that the church actually has to be here in order to, to, to see the advent of the Antichrist, which means they'd have to be around during the time of the tribulation. And, and so they also reject this doctrine of imminence, which is that you know Jesus can, can come at any moment because of the whole Jewish wedding model. Again, they, they think that it's, again, a stretch to apply that to the church that is really reading a lot into things to think that just because there is a, a Jewish tradition about the wedding that Jesus has to conform to that, they think, yeah, that's a, they believe that's a stretch. And so they don't believe it for, for those reasons. And also, especially the, the, the post-tribulation people kind of put the pre-tribulation people into a, a, a category of kind of basically being cowards, that they are weak, that they don't want to endure suffering, that they are escapists. They want to avoid any type of suffering for Christ. They don't have the fortitude to suffer for the sake of Jesus, and they want to escape from this, and they kind of disparage them for that. Nevertheless, there are clear scriptures that show a pre-tribulation rapture, and if you do not believe in a pre-tribulation rapture, then you are calling the Bible and God liars. All right, let's move on. Let's go to the mid-tribulation rapture theory. So these are folk who, again, believe that the rapture will occur at the three-and-a-half-year point of the, of the tribulation, three-and-a-half years in, the church will be raptured out. Why do they believe this? Well, they look at Matthew chapter 24, where Jesus talks about the great tribulation, the time of great tribulation will occur after the so-called abomination of desolation. That is a, a time when the Antichrist, who we'll, we will talk about quite a bit down the road, sets himself up in the Jewish temple to be God. This happens at that midpoint of the tribulation. And Jesus says that after this, there will be that 
of great tribulation. And so while the entire seven year period will be troublesome, the true wrath of God will happen, will only happen after that three and a half years. And Jesus will have to take the church out before that because the Bible clearly says in scripture that there, that, that, that the church is not appointed unto wrath. They are not ascribed to wrath. So the wrath of God cannot be put on the church. Otherwise, if the, if the, if the church endures the wrath of God, then God is a liar. It, it, it says it very clearly in 1 Thessalonians uh, uh, chapter 5 and around verse 9. The church is not appointed to wrath. So the church cannot endure the wrath of God. That clearly happens in the second half of the tribulation. Therefore, the church has to be gone before the second half of the tribulation. However, the church is promised some uh, tribulation. If you look at the the, the book of John, uh, uh, chapter 16, Jesus says you will, you will experience tribulation, but obviously not the great tribulations, which means the church will endure some of the tribulation, but not the worst parts of it. And as far as the timing of it, the, the, pre, the, the mid-tribulation is kind of ascribed this, this time to the a tribulation that clearly happens at the midpoint of the tribulation when the 144,000 witnesses, who we will talk about down the road a little bit, but they are appointed to witness to the world. They're Jewish witnesses who will witness to the world during the time of the tribulation. They are raptured at the midpoint. We see in, um, in later on in Revelation, I believe we're on chapter 15 or so, that we, we see them in heaven at the midpoint. We also see the two witnesses who we will talk about quite a bit when we get to Revelation chapter 11, they are people who also witness to the world. And at the midpoint before the uh, Antichrist sets them up as king, he um, kills them and then they are raptured after three days. And we see these uh, two witnesses as well as 144,000 witnesses in heaven before the abomination of desolation, before that midpoint. So that clearly shows that there is a rapture at the midpoint of the tribulation, and those and believers are caught up in that. And that's in the mid-tribulation, people believe that that's when all believers are caught up into the rapture. Furthermore, according to Paul, the rapture occurs at the sounding of the last trumpet. He says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that the sound of the last trumpet, and they ascribe that to the seventh trumpet of Revelation, which we'll get to when we get to Revelation chapter 7 and 8. And so that last trumpet, which the Revelation chapter 7, 8, those trumpets, they believe happen at the, in the first half of the tribulation. And the, that final trumpet, the seventh trumpet of the, that the angel sounds, again, we'll, we'll talk about that when we get there in Revelation chapter 7 and 8. That's the midpoint, and that's when the rapture must occur. So, so now the main counter argument of the pre-tribbers is that that mid-trib position denies that eminence. It, it denies the Jewish wedding model that Jesus set up. And furthermore, if you believe in a pre-trib, a, a mid-tribulation rapture, then you aren't looking for Jesus. Technically, there's no imminence. In fact, you you will know exactly when the rapture will occur. All you have to do is wait for the Antichrist to come aboard and wait for him to set up his a seven, confirm that seven-year covenant with Israel, and then start counting uh, three and a half years. And three and a half years later, he'll he will uh, it'll happen, and then the church will be zapped away. So technically, if you're a mid-tribulation person, you aren't looking for Jesus. You're looking for the Antichrist because the Antichrist is when the countdown starts. When the Antichrist confirms that covenant, 100, uh, 1260 days later, you'll be raptured. So you're looking for his coming and not the coming of Jesus. And of course, the, the, the post-tribulation people uh, kind of have some of the same um, 
arguments that they have against the, the, the pre-trib folk. So, but however, there is clear biblical evidence of a mid-tribulation rapture. So if you don't believe in a mid-tribulation rapture, you are calling God and the Bible liars. And of course, you don't want to do that. All right, let's move on to the, to the next one. The post-tribulation rapture. The post-tribulation rapture, they basically use Matthew chapter 24 as their watchword, as, as, they, as their verse, I'm sorry, excuse me, as their biblical scripture of reference. Matthew chapter 24 is when Jesus gives his end-time doctrine, and he says very, very clearly that there will be a rapture. He says that he will, he will take his elect from the four winds of heaven and gather them together. However, it is clearly said that this happens after the tribulation. Those words exactly are, after the tribulation of those days, I will gather my elect from the four winds. So it is, again, abundantly clear that this gathering together, this rapture happens after the tribulation of those days, after the abomination of desolation, after all this time, all, all this seven-year period, that's when the rapture will occur. Pretty clear. I mean, Jesus himself says it. Um, it, the Bible also says that the Antichrist will overcome the saints. That is, is talked about in, uh, in uh, Revelation chapter uh, 13. We'll get to that you know, later down the road. But it says he overcomes the saints, meaning the saints will be around during the time of the Antichrist. So how can the Antichrist overcome the saints if there aren't any saints on earth? So there are going to be saints on earth. There will be believers around when, when the Antichrist is there. And the post-tribulation rapture folks um, show that, believe that, that G there's only one depiction in the Bible of Jesus returning after his ascension. There are no two returns. There's no, he return for his church and then come back and return again at the end for a second coming. There's only one return of Jesus and that is the second coming. So that must be the time when Christians are raptured. They have to be raptured at the second coming. Now the uh, pre-tribbers and the most, and the mid-tribbers have some of the same kind of arguments. Because first of all, Matthew chapter 24, which is, is where the post-tribbers uh, post hang their head, Matthew 24 is Jewish. It is not Christian. Matthew 24 is Jesus responding to three Jewish questions by three Jewish disciples about the temple. They're not asking about the church. They're asking about the temple. They're asking about the end times for the Jews. So Jesus' response to them is only for the Jews, not for the church, because the church didn't even exist. So how could Jesus be talking about the church in Matthew 24 when there was no such thing as a church until Acts chapter 2? So Jesus is referring specifically to what's going to happen to the Jews. Uh, secondly, at the second coming, Jesus is depicted as coming with his saints, with his believers, not for the believers. So it makes no sense for Jesus to rapture the believers up halfway to heaven. Then, okay, guys, let's turn around and go back to earth. Because in the second coming, Jesus and the believers come back to earth. That makes no sense. How do they come back to earth if they're already on earth? That doesn't make any sense. And as far as the Antichrist overcoming saints, well, saints is, is not a, a, a monolithic category. Just because you're a saint doesn't mean you are a, a the church. A saint is just a believer. And there will be believers during the tribulation who are not a part of the church. The church are people who believe in Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension before this period of time. And of course, there will be believers after the tribulation, but they will not be a part of the church. However, the idea of a post-tribulation rapture is clearly in the Bible. And if you do not believe in a post-tribulation rapture, you are calling God and the Bible liars. And of course, you don't want to do that. 
So there we go. Those are the rapture theories. And people will, in eschatology, tend to cling to one of those rapture theories and they hunker down and they defend their position vigorously, viciously. They will defend it against anyone. They will attack anyone who takes the other position. If you are a pre-tribute, you are against the mid and post-tribute. If you're a post-tribute, you're against the pre and mid-tribute and so forth and so on. And if you want to see Christians behaving in a unchristian-like manner towards each other, just go to any website that takes a single rapture position, pre-mid or post, and just read the comments. There you will find Christians literally assaulting each other with scriptures, calling each other the most vicious and hateful names you can imagine. Jesus said that you will know that men will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. If you were to read these different rapture websites, you would have a hard time convincing anyone that these people are actually Christians based on the level of animosity and venom they have for their fellow Christians. It is truly sad and destructive behavior that they engage in, calling each other the most horrible, hateful names you can imagine. So who's right and who's wrong in all this? Well, here's the answer. All of them, whether you are mid, pre, or post-tripper, you are right and you are wrong. You are right in what you affirm about the rapture, but you are wrong in what you deny. How is this possible? It's possible because single rapture adherents make the same mistake as the Pharisees. The same mistake that led the Pharisees to order the death of Jesus in the first century. You see, there is a philosophy I have. I wouldn't call it a doctrine. I'll call it a philosophy. I call it multiple resolutions. And if you understand multiple resolutions and you embrace multiple resolutions, which by the way, you already do, I'll prove that in a minute. But if you embrace this, then then you're able to resolve most of the conflicts that Christians have about the Bible. Because most of the conflicts come when Christians read multiple doctrines or multiple events that seem to contradict or conflict with one another. And instead of trying to prove the Bible right, they just pick the resolution they like the best and they stick to that one and disparage the other ones. However, multiple resolutions, and I do a whole podcast on this, by the way. I have a podcast and articles on it, and I will link them in the show notes. But my philosophy of multiple resolutions is very simple. It states this. If there are multiple descriptions of conflicting events or doctrines in the Bible, and if contradictions can't exist, which we know they can't in faith by reason, if contradictions can't exist, can't exist, and there are multiple descriptions of an event or doctrine in the Bible that seem to contradict, then the only logical resolution is there must be more than one occurrence of that event. That's it. That's what multiple resolutions is. If there's more than one distinct description of an event or doctrine, then there must be multiple occurrences of that event or doctrine. Pretty logical, right? And we you already believe it. I will prove to you that you already believe it. I will give you an example of the most blatant example that every Christian believes, and that is the advents of Jesus. If you look at biblical biblical prophecy of Jesus, there are over 300 prophecies of the coming of Jesus, the advents of Jesus in the Old Testament, 300 of them, and they fall into two broad categories. One category is Jesus coming as the conquering king who will rule with a rod of iron, who will rule the nations from the throne of David. And there's also the second 
aspect of Jesus, and that is the suffering servant who is despised and rejected of men, who had no comeliness, comeliness that men would desire him, who was wounded for our iniquity, and by his stripes we are healed. That is a conflict, if not an outright contradiction. You can't beat both a conquering king and a suffering servant. You can't be both. So, what, how, how do we resolve this? If there are two distinct descriptions of the advents of Jesus as a conquering king and a suffering servant, how do you resolve them? Very simple. We already know. We know this as Christians. There were two. There are two advents of Jesus. There are two advents. Jesus will come both as a suffering servant and as a conquering king. He he comes. He came as a suffering servant in the first century, two thousand years ago, to die for our sins. And in the future, he will come again, second advent, as a as a conquering king suffering servant and conquering king done easily resolved but the pharisees didn't see it that way the pharisees were not contrastive they were comparative they didn't want to make the bible right they wanted to make themselves right they wanted to look at the, their favorite depiction of jesus which was a conquering king and ignore the suffering servant so since they didn't want their messiah to be a, a suffering servant they only focused on the conquering king and after a few generations of, of that teaching they ignored and disparaged the suffering servant so that when Jesus actually came the first time as a suffering servant, they didn't recognize him. The Pharisees should have been Jesus' biggest cheerleaders. They were the people who knew the Bible better than anyone else in the world. How did they miss Jesus? Because they were in pride. They only accepted the, the verses of the Bible that they liked that fit their personal favorite pet doctrine, and they ignored the ones that, that did not fit. So they were not expecting a suffering servant. So when he came as a suffering servant, they said, well, this guy can't be our Messiah. This guy who's born in Nazareth, who's poor and walking around with these 12 kids, uh, talking about the kingdom of heaven is in the future, that can't be our Messiah. Our Messiah is a conquering king who's gonna wipe out the Romans and set up his, his, his kingdom here. So this guy, Jesus, is a blasphemer. Let's crucify him. And they missed him. And here's the thing, we give the Pharisees a hard time for it. As we should. I mean, they, they did some, you know, they weren't right with what they did with Jesus. But we can't get on our high horse about the Pharisees because we're doing the same things. If you were taking a single rapture position, you are doing the same thing the Pharisees did. You are taking the parts of the Bible that fit your particular doctrine, that make you feel good about yourself, and you are ignoring the parts of the Bible that don't fit your favorite pet doctrine. You are doing the same thing the Pharisees did. You are accepting the verses that agree with you and you are ignoring or disparaging the parts of the Bible that disagree with you. That is pride, my friends. You, If you believe in either a mid, pre, or post-trib rapture only, you are in pride because you are only accepting the parts of the Bible that agree with you and you are pretending the parts that don't agree with you either don't exist or you are disparaging them. You are saying that portions of the Bible are wrong, not because the Bible is wrong, but because they don't fit what you personally believe. You are saying that your doctrine is greater than the Bible because you are ignoring the parts of the Bible that clearly speak against your particular pre, mid, or post-tribulation beliefs. You are putting your beliefs, your doctrine, ahead of the Bible. Do you truly believe that it's the right thing to do? Do you truly believe that you can ignore or disparage parts of the Bible because they don't fit you? Who's more important, the Bible and what God says or what you happen to personally believe that makes you comfortable and makes you feel like you're right? So what's the resolution? Easy, what I just said before. 
Make the Bible right, even if it means you're wrong. If the Bible clearly shows scriptures that prove a pre-tribulation rapture, then there's a pre-tribulation rapture. If the Bible shows that there are clearly verses, that there is a mid-tribulation rapture, then there's a mid-tribulation rapture. If the Bible clearly shows verses that show a, a post-tribulation rapture, then there's a post-tribulation rapture. That means there are three end times raptures. Let me say that again. If the Bible clearly speaks to three end times raptures, pre, mid, and post, then there are three end times raptures, pre, mid, and post. It's not a question of either or, it's a question, it's all. All three of them exist because the Bible speaks to all three of them. Never mind which, are, which one your favorite is. Who cares what your favorite is? The Bible clearly speaks of three raptures, then there are three post-tribulation raptures. And you already believe that there are multiple raptures. You know how I know you believe it? Because we talked about this in the last episode. There are four raptures that have already occurred that none of you disagree with. Enoch was raptured. Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him. No one argues against that. That's a rapture. Enoch, I'm sorry, excuse me, Elijah was taken in a fiery chariot. That's a rapture. No one argues against that. Jesus ascended to heaven bodily, physically, supernaturally in Acts chapters 1 and 2. That's a rapture. If you don't believe in the ascension of Jesus, then you should probably stop being a Christian because maybe Christianity is not right for you if you don't believe in Jesus, Jesus ascended. Philip was raptured. Philip witnessed the Ethiopian eunuch, then he was physically, supernaturally taken back to where he came from. That is a rapture, and everyone agrees with those. Those are four raptures that you already agree with. Why do you believe that there can only be one more? Do you believe that like God has only like five rapture tickets <laughs> and, and he's already used four of them and he only has one more left? Of course not. That's ridiculous. God can rapture people as many times as he wants to. Why do you believe he can only do one more? Why do you believe that after rap rapturing Enoch and Elijah and Jesus and Philip, that, that God only has one rapture left in his, in his rapture tank? That he's like almost done. He only has, he can only do five and he's done four. There's only one more left. Come on. Be, be serious here. God is all powerful. He can rapture people a hundred thousand times if he wants to. So he's not limited to four or five. He can have seven. There are seven raptures in the Bible. The four I just mentioned. Then there's a pre-trib, the mid-trib, and the post-trib. That's the only solution, the only resolution that makes the Bible right. Justify the Bible, not your own doctrine. Make the Bible right, even if it means you're wrong, because who cares if you're wrong? You're a human being. Who cares if your doctrine, your favorite pet belief that you've been arguing, arguing about for years is wrong? Doesn't matter. What matters is that the Bible has to be right. And this is the only resolution that errs on the side of justifying the Bible over you. Forget what you believe. Forget what you've been taught in church. Forget what you've been arguing about with your fellow eschatologists for all these years. If you, if, you want to, if you want to make yourself right over the Bible, then you are in pride and you do not want to be there. Okay, so how would this work if there are three raptures? Now, I, I believe it has to be three because I believe in the Bible and I believe the Bible proves, it proves and shows all three. But what I'm going to say is my speculation as to how. The what, that there are three raptures, I think that's incontrovertible. However, I do believe that um, I, have, I have my thoughts that I... That I tend to believe, but I'm, I'm not going to say that they're doctrine, but I'm going to give you my ideas. The first rapture, the pre-tribulation rapture, I believe this is the rapture that Jesus would intend for his church. I believe that this is the optimal rapture for the church, that the church is taken out before the rapture. I believe that when Jesus said what he said to Philadelphia, he meant it, that they would be kept out of the rapture. However, I don't believe that everyone will be, every Christian will be taken from 
during this time because there are conditions on it. This is not universal. There are pre-tribulations, one of them being the late Chuck Missler, who happens to be a, 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 a role model and a mentor of mine who believed that no matter, even if you didn't believe in a pre-tribulation rapture, you'd still be taken out. I don't believe that. I believe there are conditions. And the main condition is that you be watchful and you be faithful for it. We talked about this during the letter to Sardis. Jesus said, if you are, do not watch, you'll be taken upon as a thief, which means the opposite. If you are watching, you will not be taken as a thief. If you are ready and you are faithful for it, I believe you will be taken. I believe the pre-tribulation rapture is for Christians who are actively looking for the groom. They are they are like the bride um, in, in the Jewish wedding. They are actively anticipating the return of the groom at any point, and they will be taken. And if you are not ready, if you are not looking for it, if you are a mid-tribber or a post-tribber, you will not be taken because you are not watchful. It's Jesus' preference that you be taken at this point, but, you, but if you're not, you won't be. It, it, but his preference is that you will be. The mid-tribulation rapture is technically only for, it's supposed to be only for the 144,000 witnesses and the people who they convert to Christ during the tribulation, as well as the, the two witnesses. So of course, we'll talk about when we get to Revelation chapter 11. The, all, there, there would be a, a great harvest of millions of people who missed the first rapture and who are seeing these supernatural things happen during the tribulation and they will be witnessed to by these 144,000 as well as the two main witnesses and they will, they will become believers in Christ. They will not be part of the church, but they will be the believers because not every believer is part of the church. People who, who believe before the time of Jesus were not part of the church. Abraham, David, uh, Solomon, well, if you, if you think Solomon was, was, was a believer, uh, Hezekiah, uh, just, uh, all the prophets, they were believers, but they were not, were not part of the church. The church can only exist for people, can only exist for people who believe in Jesus after his uh, death or resurrection and ascension. If you believe in Jesus before that, you are a believer, but you're not part of the church. And people after the church age ends who believe will also be believers, but they will not be part of the church. They will be raptured at the midpoint of the tribulation. It's clearly there. And I also believe that anyone who is a believer who happened to miss the first rapture will also be raptured. So all the mid-tribbles will be raptured at the midpoint of the tribulation, just like they believe. And hopefully the post-tribulation folks will also be raptured. They'll, they'll realize, oh, wait, we were wrong about our, our position. And they'll be re, um, uh, raptured as well. The post-tribulation rapture is not a rapture to heaven. It's very, very Jewish. As Matthew 24 is very Jewish. They will be taken to, they will be raptured away, but they will not be taken to heaven because the the last rapture for the Jewish people is the gathering of the Jewish people to a, a, space, a plot that is hidden while Jesus fights the battle of Armageddon. You have to remember that the whole point of the tribulation at the time of Jacob's trouble is to get Israel to corporately accept their true Messiah. Now the Antichrist will present himself as the Messiah and, G and the Jews will initially believe that he's the Messiah until he sets himself up in the temple and blasphemes against God. And then they will realize the Jews realize, oh my God, this is not our Messiah. The true Messiah was Jesus who was here 2,000 years ago and they will call for him. The Bible clearly says that, uh, he says, I, Jesus, God says, and I'll, I'll put the verse up in, in the show notes, he says, I will return to my place until they acknowledge their offense, their offense being the rejection of their Messiah. In their, you know, in, in their trials, in, in their um, affliction, they will seek me earnestly. And that's when the Jews will, will realize that in the affliction that the Antichrist brings upon them, they will realize that Jesus is their Messiah. They will request him. And then three days later, Jesus will return. But as he returns for them, he will 
uh, rapture them to an area called Basra, which is actually in Jordan, and he will keep them there. Some people believe it's, it's the, the old city of Petra, may or may not be, we'll talk about that when we get there. But he will put them there and keep them safe until he fights the Battle of Armageddon against the, against the Antichrist's for, forces and defeats them. So the post-tribulation rapture is not a rapture to heaven, it's a, it's a free all expenses paid trip to Jordan. So if you just want to really go to Jordan bad, then ignore the first and second raptures and stay stubborn and you get a free trip to Jordan. Me, not, not interested. But that's those are the three raptures. The pre-tribulation rapture is for the faithful church who is, who is watchful. The second rapture is for the, the people who are, go through the tribulation and are witnessed to and become Christians as well as any Christians who are left behind. And the third tribulation is, excuse me, the third rapture is for uh, Israel, believing Israel who will be taken to Basra, Petra to be kept safe during while Jesus comes and fights the battle of Armageddon. And I believe any Christian who is still that bloody stubborn that after first two more two raptures they still don't believe, then I guess they'll be caught up with Israel as well and they'll be taken to Jordan for a few days waiting for, for Armageddon. But that's how it goes. So that is my speculative belief of how the three raptures will occur. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's quite possible I am, but you know, I think that that fits with what the Bible says. So there are some people right now who are listening and you're mad. Oh, you're so angry with me right now. You or your teeth are, are, are grinding together. Your, bur- your, your brows are furrowed. You're, you're hunching your shoulders and you're about to write. If you're not already writing stuff against me, telling me how wrong I am and how blasphemous I am and how, how big of a heretic I am because you're mad. But before you start writing your letter to me, before you start commenting and telling me what a horrible heretic I am, I just have a question for you. Here's my question. Why are you mad? No, seriously, why are you mad right now? Why are you mad? Are you mad because I just told you you were wrong? You can be, because I didn't. I didn't tell you you were wrong. I told you you were right. No matter which rapture position you take, I've just told you you are right. If you are a pre-tribber, you're right. If you're a mid-tribber, you're right. You're, there will be a mid-trib rapture. If you're a post-tribber, you're right. There will be a post-trib rapture. I've just told you you're right. So you cannot be angry with me for telling you that you're wrong because I have not told you you're wrong. I've told you you are right. The only reason you're mad at me right now. If you are mad, there's only one reason you're mad at me. Not because I told you you're wrong, because I didn't. The only reason you're mad at me is because I've told you that your opponent is also right. If you're a post-tripper, I've just told you that the pre- and mid-trippers are right. If you're a pre-tripper, I've just told you that the mid- and post-trippers are right. If you're a mid-tripper, I've just told you that the pre- and post-trippers are right. And if you're still mad at me, why? You should be rejoicing. You should be happy. Why? Because I've just given you a reason to make peace with your brothers and sisters in Christ. You've been arguing with them for years, posting all these angry posts against them and saying having all these angry arguments with them for years telling them that they're wrong and you're right I've just given you a reason to embrace your Christian brothers after all these years you can all be right you can embrace them you can come together on common ground but if you're still mad at me what you're saying is that it's more important to you that you prove your opponent wrong than prove yourself right let me say that again. If you are mad at me right now, the only reason you can logically be angry with me is because it's more important to you that other Christians be proven wrong, even if you're right. That 
my friend, means that you are so deep in pride you need to pray for repentance right now because you are mad that you can't lord over your fellow Christians anymore and tell them they're wrong. You can't do it anymore because now you know that they're right. As I've said before, if your doctrine doesn't match up with the Bible, then change your doctrine. Because it's more important that the Bible be right than your doctrine. If your doctor doctor matches up with the Bible, great. If it does not, then change your doctrine. Get out of pride. Love your fellow Christian. God commanded you. Jesus commanded you. By this you will know, by this all men know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. And if you are rejecting this opportunity to be in fellowship with your brothers because of your pride, because you want so bad, not just for you to be right, but for them to be wrong, then you are in pride. You should be ashamed of yourself. Go to your fellow Christian brother and say, hey, I've just found a reason that we can both be right and be in fellowship. Repent of all of the vicious things you've said about your Christian brothers and sisters. Go to them and say, hey, go to Faith by Reason. Listen to this video and podcast and realize how we're all right and how we can all be right in the name of Jesus. If you don't do that, you no longer have an excuse. God will hold you accountable for being for, for being in pride. And pride takes you away from God. And if you continue to be in pride, you have no one to blame but yourself. And you will stand before Jesus and you have to explain yourself to him because you have you no longer have the excuse for staying in that pride. If you're staying in the pride, it's because you choose to be, because you are choosing to be further from God than he than you can possibly than, than you could be. And you are choosing to stay in pride because your pride is more important to you than your fellowship with your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ and your fellowship with Jesus and God help you if that's your position. Now I want to make it clear. I am not standing on a soapbox, being on a high horse saying that I'm better than anybody else who's listening right now. I'm not. Like most of you listening, I had a a single rapture theory as well that I clung to pridefully. I was a hardcore pre-tribulation believer. And when I heard this doctrine of multiple raptures, I did not immediately jump on it. I had to be dragged kicking and screaming to this belief because I believe in the pre-trib rapture. I would argue against anyone who believed in the mid and post-trib rapture and I would ignore the verses that argued against me, especially Matthew chapter 24. I would just, I would justify my position. I would marginalize the verse, but it always bothered me. Matthew 24 always bothered me because it clearly said after the tribulation, there would be a rapture. And once I heard this idea of the multiple raptures, I didn't like it at first. It made me angry, just like it's making you angry. And I fought against it, but the Holy Spirit kept convicting me until I had to be dragged back to to the understanding that this is the only resolution that made God right, made the Bible right, and made me wrong. Because God can't be wrong, the Bible can't be wrong, but I can be. And this is the only resolution that made that happen. And once I accepted this idea, I had a tremendous amount of peace. I finally had peace in my position on the rapture that I never had before when I was fighting against people and writing angry posts against them on online and arguing against them in church. I finally had peace. And if you want the peace, then you should embrace it too. If you don't, if you want to keep staying in your pride, then that is your decision. But again, you will be accountable for it. All right. Let's wrap things up. I think that is all I want to say about that. I'm way over time. I'm at like 47 minutes. So the bottom line is 
the Bible clearly teaches three raptures. And if you want to be in line with the Bible, believe in three raptures. If you don't, then stick to your position and you can talk to Jesus and tell him, and tell him face to face why he's wrong when you stand before him in the end times. Uh, let me know how that goes for you. All right. Thank you for listening. I appreciate it. Uh, please subscribe to Faith by Reason on this YouTube channel. Hit the subscribe button. Please hit the like button as well. The like helps me a lot because it lets people uh, know that uh, this is something that other folks want to see. It, it elevates it on the uh, on YouTube and gives more people to, to view it. And if you don't want people to view it, then you don't have to sit, hit the like button, but also know you'll be accountable for that too. Jesus will hold you accountable for the fact that you uh, did not promote something that you know is true. And I'll just let you and Jesus deal with that. Also, subscribe to Faith by Reason. I'm making lots of friends on this episode, aren't I? Subscribe to Faith by Reason so that you get these episodes as soon as they are uh, ready. And in the next episode, we're going to get back to our verse by verse study. We're going to get to Revelation chapter five when we look at the the scroll, uh, which is the title deed to the earth, and we will see the 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 a preview of the tribulation, which we've been talking about. But in chapter five, I think we'll cover that in one episode. We'll look at chapter five. We'll still be in heaven, and we will look at the that scroll, the seven seals that um, bring about the advent of the tribulation. So it's going to be some really exciting stuff. And I look forward to talking to you next week when we go to Revelation chapter 5 and we look at the little scroll that only the Lamb of God can open.